Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you for being here with us this morning as we worship together and as we uh, open the Word and celebrate what God is doing in our midst. Um, We're going to be in Luke chapter 18, but I need to make you aware of a few things before we get there. Um, There's a couple sign-up sheets. Um, Some of you came through the gym. Some of you came through this way. Either way is fine. We just want to make sure we get some traffic flowing and not over-congregating and cramping up too many areas. But there's a couple sign-up sheets in the gym I want you to be aware of. First is February 27th. We'll have our congregational meeting. We want any of you to be there. Um, But you do not have to sign up to attend the meeting. The sign up in the gym is only if you want to bring a pot of chili to um, contribute to the competition and also just because we're going to be eating pots of chili. And when I say there's a chili cook-off competition, we don't want you to bring like one bowl to enter into the competition. We want you to bring like a pot of chili that will be entered in the competition, but also so that people can eat because we like to eat. And so uh, February 27th in that building right there, um, Sunday evening, I think we're starting at 5.30, um, that will be our congregational meeting for um, the first half of this year. And you'll hear, if you haven't been to one of those, um, we'll eat, we'll hang out. There will be child care, so the kids will eat with their families and then um, go upstairs to child care. And then we'll have um, a bit of a business meeting, but also just a ministry meeting where we'll talk about different things going on in the life of the church, um, kind of updates on stuff that's happened the last six months and, and getting you ready for what's coming the next six months. So please make note of that in your calendars. Um, the other sign-up is for Rebuilding Hope. Uh, Saturday, March the 12th, and we need you to sign up, and we need you to give us some level of information of, um, you know, and we know each other well, and so um, if you have some level of skill, put something on there, because it is a construction-based project, and we need to be able to give to Rebuilding Hope, hey, here's what our team can do. And uh, so the sign-up for that is in the lobby. There's not a time on there because as we figure out how many people we have and what skills we have, then we find out what projects we can tackle, and the time might be a little bit fluid. So it might be an 8 to 12 kind of thing. It might be an 8 till 2, um, that sort of thing. So, But sign up if you're available for any of that slot, and we'll figure it out. We just need names on a list right now. And if you do not sign up uh, with some description of what kind of skills you bring to the table, then we will just make up skills for you. And that's already happened a few times. So do not, it's more dangerous to leave the skills section blank. Just put something down or somebody else will fill in the details. Um, Now, uh, also tonight, uh, Super Bowl. So youth will be watching the Super Bowl in this room. Awana will meet as normal. Um, youth starts at, at 5.30, so before the game starts, they'll meet in here. And then um, Awana meets as normal, 6 to 7.30. And life groups are doing various different things. Um, lastly, I got good news. Um, we have some progress in our sanctuary, and uh, we will have some teams in there um, pretty Pretty much all of the next three weeks, um, every day, there'll be teams working in there, getting things clean, getting some things removed, getting things reinstalled, that sort of thing. We're still looking at, um, you know, a six-week or more process, um, but the insurance holdup has has gone away. And so we've made it through that process of just figuring out what insurance is going to do, and there will still be ongoing conversations and and probably delays along the way, because that's just how these things go. But 
we do have some progress in there. Our goal is early April or at least by Easter on April 17th, being back in our big room and worshiping together in there. So please pray for that and uh, just know that when we have progress, we'll, I haven't said a whole lot the last couple of weeks because we've been in insurance limbo, um, but now we're kind of out of that into a new stage and uh, I'll keep you updated and we might post some pictures and stuff like that as it goes just so you guys see the, uh, the progress that we make in there. So Luke chapter 18, how good is good enough? Last week we looked at the first half of Luke 18 and we saw the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the mistake the Pharisee made was comparing himself to the tax collector. And he actually sat in the temple and had the audacity to say, God, thank you that I'm not like this guy over here because this guy's messed up. This, this guy is sinful. And the problem was that the Pharisee was not comparing himself to the proper standard. And, you know, if you have children, you know that sometimes you get asked by your kids, hey, daddy, am I good at this? And the answer is, well, it depends on what standard you're comparing yourself to. Daddy, am I a good, answer, or am I a good dancer? Maybe. You're not a professional, but you're five. So for a five-year-old, yeah, you're, you're a really good dancer. And as far as I'm concerned, as dad, I love your dancing, so you're awesome at it. Um, Jericho's basketball team this year had a roller coaster of a season, as in like very few close games, a lot of blowouts, but blowouts in multiple directions. And so you have some games where you've got these seven and eight-year-old boys, and you're just trying to get them to go back onto the court because they're like, man, we're so bad. This other team is so good, and we're so bad. And then there's other games where you're just like, boys, calm down, because they're like, man, we're so good. These guys are terrible. And you're like, you just be quiet. You can't say that that loud. Like, it hurts kids' feelings. And so the, it's just a question of what your standard is. There are some teams that are better than you. There are some teams that are worse than you. And I was reminded, I, I saw, um, I didn't even think about this beforehand, but in the first service, Emmanuel was sitting right there. And I thought about Emmanuel, and I thought about the highlight of my football career took place in Romania. It was the only place that I was a good football player. Because six years ago, when we go and we do this youth camp in Romania, the, the scale is different. The standard of goodness is just different. And I didn't even think in the planning, the plan was not to like bolster our egos by teaching these kids how to play American football. But boy, did that ever happen. Because we get out there and we got... Um, and we've got basically three of us that are, that are doing this punt, passing, kick competition. Myself and two guys that are younger than me. And we were like in this competition, we were literally like the three best football players in that corner of Romania that day. And it was like, I mean, when you've never thrown a football before, you don't know how to throw a football. And Romanians, they, they know how to kick things. But, you, but a football is a very different shape than a soccer ball. So it throws you off at first. And so for, you have this like window of time until they figure out how to kick a football, where you're like better than them at kicking a football, and then you realize they're just generally better at kicking things than you are. But I was, you know, in this competition, we were like leading the competition, so we weren't really a part. But then they ask us to demonstrate, and when we're demonstrating, we're not like throwing the ball as far as we can, because we're, we're trying to just demonstrate to them the, the technique. And then they're like, all right, now you guys... Show us what you got. Because they thought, well, we've got this figured out now. I've thrown a football five times. Surely I know what I'm doing. And they're like, all right, you boys, do something. 
and we go and we throw the ball, and you would have thought, I mean, y'all, Jake Stokes was an NFL player in Romania that day. And like, I looked, I looked really good. Like that, that was the, the standard there. And so the question, are you good at something? You can answer it a lot of different ways. Depends on who you compare yourself to. The Pharisee's mistake in the passage we looked at last week was that he was comparing himself to a tax collector, and the standard was God himself. And the mistake in this passage is the rich young ruler and how he defines goodness from the law. He misses the point. He actually misses the point of the entire old covenant law in the way goodness is defined. And so when we ask the question today, how good is good enough? The question is, well, the first point, but before we answer that question, we got to figure out what our standard for goodness is. Because the only way to be good enough is to be God himself. And you can be better than a lot of people, but that's not going to get you anything eternally. So Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. A ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. See all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So those who heard it said, Well, then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many more, many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So as we unpack um, Luke 18, 18 through 43 today, we're going to unpack it in three sections, and we're going to see two, one individual and one group that completely missed the point. And we're going to see one man that, that gets the point. He sees the point for what it really is. The rich young ruler misses the point here. And then in the aftermath of this whole confrontation with the rich young ruler, the disciples, they miss the point. But then it takes a blind man to really see Jesus for who he really is. Um, the rich young ruler passage is, is paralleled in Mark and Matthew. I mean, you know, we have four Gospels. And this is important for all of us to know. We have four Gospels, which are essentially biographies of Jesus. And those are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Matthew, Mark are very, very similar. Mark essentially just being a shorter version of Matthew. Luke is very similar to Matthew and Mark, but not as similar as they are to each other. John is like totally different. John, John is much more thematic. He doesn't go off of the timeline. He doesn't write stories in order. He just is going off of here's what you need to know about Jesus. But all of them are four different perspectives on the life of Jesus. And three of the four record this interaction of the rich young ruler. But seeing how, how they differ actually gives us a little bit more insight. Because we first have to ask the question, before we ask the question about 
the, the rich young ruler and his definitions of goodness, we have to ask the question, who is this guy? And my concern here is that if we've heard this story before, we probably already have this like negative bias towards the rich young ruler. We think he's just some stuck-up rich guy. And we think that he's not genuine, that he doesn't really want to follow Jesus, that he's so enamored with his money and his status that it's, he's not really interested in following Jesus. But I want us to look more closely than that, to not just jump to the end where he does walk away, but recognize that he walks away sad, according to Luke, full of sorrow, according to Matthew, um, in despair, according to Mark. And depending on your translation, there might be different words used in there. But this is not an easy thing to walk away from. And I want us to see that this rich young ruler is actually sincere in his question. When he asks the question, he wants to follow Jesus. He wants to know what is the path, what is the step to take. Matthew actually he has him asking a little bit of a different question. It's not, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Matthew says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? He is trying to do something to sign up for Team Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to be all in. But he's got to figure out, what does it take? Well, I'm counting the cost. What does it take to be all in? How do I enter into this relationship with Jesus and be part of his team? So he's sincere. He's also humble. When he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, he is putting himself under Jesus's authority. And he is saying, Jesus, you have the answers. Give me the answers. Show me the way. And, and you know, it would, it would be easy to miss that he is asking the same question that Jesus has already been asked. Eight chapters earlier, Jesus is asked the exact same question by another person who is approaching the conversation from a totally different place. And this is why I think we need to have sympathy for the rich young ruler and not just pile on him. Yeah, he gets the answer wrong in the end, but he's coming from a sincere and humble place at the beginning, much unlike the scribe who in Luke 10.25 comes to Jesus and asks the same question. Luke 10.25, a scribe comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer is essentially, the first part of the answer is the same. He goes straight to the law. With, with the scribe, he goes straight to the law and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Then the scribe, and this is the way, the way Luke describes the scribe. The scribe is seeking to justify himself. The scribe asks the exact same question as the rich young ruler does. The rich young ruler wants to follow Jesus. The scribe wants to trick Jesus and, follow and justify himself. Two totally different places of asking Jesus a question. And so he responds to the same question, first similarly and then a little bit differently. Because the scribe hears this about, well, you love, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe asks another question, well, who is my neighbor? And that's where Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Look back, uh, Luke 10, 25 and following, to see how that unfolds. But it's the same question, the same basic story. And this might surprise us, okay? Because we're, we're New Testament Christians. We believe in the gospel. We believe in grace, not works. And so maybe it's a little bit uncomfortable or surprising that two times 
exactly two times, Jesus is asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And both times, Jesus goes straight to, oh, well, you should follow the law. Wait, wait, wait. Is that the gospel? Is that the good news? That doesn't sound like the gospel to me, right? If, if I'm going to be witnessing to somebody and sharing the gospel with somebody, and they say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Am I supposed to start with the law? And say, well, well first you're supposed to follow the law. But it reveals here the, the problem with the definition of goodness. And I'll come back to that in a second. But the rich young ruler, he was sincere, unlike the scribe. He was humble in putting himself under the teaching authority of Jesus, saying, you are a good teacher. Instruct me. Show me what I need to do. He's also urgent. Matthew, uh, Matthew, I think, not Matthew and Mark. I think it's just Matthew. Matthew says that the rich young ruler runs to Jesus. That as Jesus is literally walking out of town, because Jesus is actually on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, timeline, we, this is the last couple of weeks before Jesus goes to the cross. In fact, at the, in the end of this passage, or the middle of this passage, we see Jesus starting to talk about, guys, we're going to Jerusalem. Recognize, when he gets to Jerusalem, that's when you have Palm Sunday. Riding on a donkey, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. That, that happens only a few days after this interaction is happening. So this is, we're only a couple of weeks away from the cross in this passage. And the rich young ruler is urgent. He runs to Jesus before he gets out of town to ask this eager question. So here's what we don't need to do. We do not need to just dismiss the rich young ruler as being this stuck-up rich guy who is selfish and doesn't really want to follow Jesus anyway. Because if we're too negative about the rich young ruler, we might accidentally be too positive of ourselves. Because that was what I warned you about in the beginning. If you want to define good, you can't define good by comparing yourself to somebody else that's not good. And just that's how you define better. That's not how you define good. And better doesn't get you anywhere into God's kingdom. That doesn't get you anything of eternal value. It still leaves you in the state of condemnation. And so we can't just beat up on the rich young ruler and say, well, he's some stuck-up rich guy, and I'm not as obsessed with my money as that guy is. Let's pause for a second. Again, Sympathy for the rich young ruler. If you say, I'm not obsessed with my money. I am not, uh, you know, my money is not an idol. I would freely and easily give up some of my money for Jesus. Uh, let me remind you, I read the passage. Jesus didn't ask for some of this guy. Jesus didn't ask him to give 10% to his church. I'm, I'm happy if you give 10% to your church. I'm happy if you give 10% to your church and more to missions and more to, to the poor. That's great. That's beautiful. Recognize the rich young ruler was asked for far more than that. And Jesus isn't necessarily asking all of us to sell all we have and give it to the poor right now. But recognize what Jesus asked of the rich young ruler is, is incredible. To think he asked for everything. And this man came to him sincere, urgent, and humble. And he came to him about 80 to 90% in, it sounds like. If I was to judge the, the rich young ruler on how he looked in the eyes of the world, I guarantee you, society thought, this is a good dude. He's doing good things. He's getting a lot of stuff right. He's following the law. And it sounds like that dude is about 80, 90% ready to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, I don't want 80 I don't want 90, I don't want 95, I don't even want 99. I want everything. And it was at everything that was the bridge too far for that guy. He couldn't say, okay, 
I'll give up everything for the sake of following Jesus. And so before we too quickly dismiss him, recognize Jesus' request here is extreme. But if we're searching for the definition of goodness, we have to ask, what does it mean for a teacher to be good? And what does it mean for God to be good? And what does it mean for a man to be good? The man calls Jesus good teacher. And I don't know exactly what the man meant there, if it was good in teaching skill, if he's just saying, Jesus, you are good at teaching, or if he is saying, Jesus, you are good and you are a teacher. But Jesus doesn't focus on the teaching skill aspect. Jesus focuses on moral goodness. And he says, whoa, 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 why do you call me good? And that's where Jesus early on gives us the point of the whole passage that follows. Jesus very early on, and before he answers the guy, he questions the guy and doesn't wait for an answer. So guy asks a question, Jesus asks another question, but it's a rhetorical question and he doesn't wait for the guy to answer, and then he goes on with his answer. But Jesus' question is, why would you call me good? Only God is good. Because Jesus is setting us up, setting the man up and setting us as hearers up to, to, re- to wrestle with this idea of what is our standard of goodness. And if our standard of goodness is not God and God alone, then we're going to miss everything when it comes to following the law, obeying Jesus, following Jesus, and, and being right with God. God's goodness is complete moral purity. We can't take this too lightly. Sometimes we diminish God's goodness by kind of thinking that he is like us or that he should answer to us in some way. And sometimes God does things that we don't like. Sometimes God allows things to happen that we don't like. And then we might in our minds think, well, I guess God is good, but boy, it just this whole thing doesn't seem good. But we have to recognize when we proclaim God's goodness, what we're saying is that he is so unlike us, he does not have to fit according to our definitions and our measurements and our expectations. But that his moral purity actually defines us. We don't get to define him. It's the other way around. And so when this man comes and he says, what good deeds must I do? It's already the wrong question. What must I do to inherit eternal life is the wrong starting place because it starts with I. Now, I love the way Jesus responds to questions because Jesus, it, it, Jesus is really creative with his math in this passage too. Maybe you see it, maybe you don't. But I want to draw your attention to verse 22. Jesus looks at the man and he says, okay, you follow the law, great. There's one thing missing. He looks at, he looks at him and he says, you're doing good, buddy you got one more thing to do, and then gives them three things to do. That's Jesus' creative math. You lack one thing. Now here, go do these three things. You lack one thing. Now go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Three things that illustrate one point, 100%. Jesus is calling for 100% devotion. Jesus is calling for this man to turn over everything. In order to be made righteous in the light of the law, which is what this man is going for, Jesus has to get him to see that you have to be 100%. 100% adherence to the law, 100% following Jesus, or you are unrighteous and you stand condemned. See, the point that the rich young ruler is missing, first of all, is the point of the law. Because the law was not given 
to make people righteous. The law was given to tell people they weren't righteous. The law was not given to justify sinners. The law was given to convict sinners. And the purpose of that law is so instrumental in us understanding. We have to get this point right in order to understand the way the old covenant unfolds, the way Jesus moves the old covenant and restores it in a new covenant and the new arrangement Jesus makes, and then the way the the apostles preach the gospel is we recognize the law is good, the law is important, and the law had a very important function and retains that function in showing the sinner that you are not righteous. The law is the demonstration of God's standards. When I say we can't, we can't make God fit under our standards, it works the other way around. Well, the law is God's standard. And so Jesus is saying the same thing that James would say. If anyone keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point, it is sin. And he stands condemned. So the rich young ruler now finds himself in this in-between place, the, the miserable middle where the law has been used to demonstrate you didn't get it, buddy. You didn't make 100%. You're not completely righteous. You're not without sin. Something has to be done about your sin. But the problem with the rich young ruler is that he is still placing some level of value in stuff, in his riches, in his personal kingdom that he is the ruler over. He has one leg in to the kingdom of God. He ran to Jesus. He had great urgency. And here's the the warning for each of us, is that this is a man in the miserable middle ground between living for Jesus and living for the world. And he's being stretched and pulled. And he has a pull towards Jesus. He knows Jesus is, there's something there. He knows following Jesus is valuable and he wants to go that direction. But something over here is just pulling him back because he's got one leg in the kingdom of God and one leg in the kingdom of the world. And he still values this kingdom that he has ruling power over. And he still values this kingdom that he wants to be a citizen of. And what happens when he's pulled between two kingdoms? He's pulled back into the kingdom of the world. And you know, some of us have experimented with this. Probably all of us have at a certain time where we want to live for Jesus but retain a little bit of the world. We want some value, some recognition, some piece of the world's benefit over here. And we really like lots of stuff about the world. But we really want to follow Jesus. And so we're, we're not fully devoted there. And we look back at the world and we're like, boy, it looks like they're having so much fun. And you look back and you're like, well, God promised this beautiful kingdom over here and I'm not living in it. And the problem is it's because you're stuck in the middle. It's because you're stuck in the middle. You may actually have more pleasure over here, but then you have eternal condemnation. That, that one doesn't end well. You might have a lot of fun over here in the kingdom of the world, And you might make yourself more miserable in the here and now by living in the middle and waffling back and forth and sometimes living for the world and sometimes living for Jesus. But over here, the end is destruction. Over here, there's peace, hope, and joy, and eternal security. But one foot in, one foot out is always going to pull you back and forth. And for the rich young ruler, the one foot out of the kingdom of God and into the kingdom of the world pulls him back. And he can't get across that bridge, the bridge too far of giving up everything He has to follow Jesus. This passage does not tell us, everybody go sell everything you got. 
This passage does not tell us rich people don't go to heaven. This passage tells us rich people are prone to keep one foot in the world, and it makes it that much harder to live all out for the kingdom of God. The more you love the world, the harder it is to grow in deep affections for the kingdom of God. And let's think about this for a second. We, we always ask the question, why does God allow so much suffering? Why is this life so hard? But now we might have actually found a, a glimpse of grace in it. Because what I just told you is if you love the world too much, it's going to pull you back into the slog of the world and away from the kingdom of God. And sometimes it is God's grace that allows us to fall out of love with the things of the world. To, to loosen our grip on the things of the world, the things that are passing, the material riches, the societal status, all of those things that we long for in the kingdom of the world, sometimes it is a grace of God to allow us to not have those so that those will not be our purpose. Because the kingdom over here is so much better. And it is his love that pulls and, and pulls some of these things away from us so that we can live in wholehearted devotion to him. But I told you, where the rich young ruler misses the point is in misunderstanding the law. He believed that the law was there to justify. The law was there to declare him righteous. But Romans 8 tells us there's something the law cannot do. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says that there's something the law cannot do. And what the law cannot do is it cannot make sinners righteous. All the function of the law is to tell sinners they are not righteous. But what the law could not do, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirements of the law would be then fulfilled in us. Fulfilled in us by him. So that the law would be and can be the perfect expectations of God for righteousness can be true of you. But not by you trying harder, not by you being better, by you receiving the gift that comes from Jesus and the new life and the righteousness as a gift from him. And so we don't trust in the law to make us good. We recognize the law has already told us we're bad. We've got to find another answer. So... From here, Peter sees something. And y'all, we pile on the rich young ruler. I already defended the rich young ruler. Now I'm going to defend Peter because we pile on Peter a lot. But Peter gets it right here. Peter like, has some good insight here. Peter stands up and says, Jesus, I get it. He's not giving up everything. But we did. Are you saying the problem with the rich young ruler is he didn't give up his home and he didn't give up his work and he didn't give up his family Jesus, that, that's what you asked us to do, and we did it. And Peter is affirmed then by Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're, you're right, Peter. And when you give up something for the kingdom of God, you're going to get reward. And Jesus references reward in this life and reward in the next life. Both are possible. And the reward, the reward in this life may not go according to our expectations, but Jesus says there will be some. But the reward in the eternal kingdom, that's what we're really after. We want to live in light of the eternal kingdom. So Jesus is poking in and he's saying, okay, you're right, Peter. You get the idea of sacrifice. You get that you're supposed to give up something to follow me. Jesus did tell them, take up your cross and follow me. He, I mean, he said, 
leave behind father and mother and sister and brother to follow me. That's one level of commitment. Taking up your cross, that's be ready to die to follow me. Not just reject your family, but be ready to die to follow me. And so Peter opens the door and recognizes Jesus is talking about sacrifice. So Jesus goes a little deeper in verse 31. So he takes the 12 aside. So with the rich young ruler, there's multiple people. It's probably a big crowd. In fact, um, there is a crowd, and the rich young ruler runs into the crowd. And then in verse 31, it's just the 12. And Jesus says, We are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And Luke says then in verse 34, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. That's Luke 18, 31 through 34. So the rich young ruler missed the point of the law. The point of the law is not to, to follow it so that you can be righteous. The point of the law is to tell you you can't follow it and you are unrighteous. Now, the disciples are missing the point of Jesus' suffering. They can't grasp it, Luke says. They cannot wrap their heads around what Jesus is talking about. This is not the first time. This is, Jesus has already um, told them that he's going to die before this time. But And long before that, Jesus has already shown that he is fulfilling scriptures. And the scriptures have already said, the prophets have already said that the Messiah will die. And when Jesus is identifying himself as the son of David, as the son of man, as the Messiah, it's in a sense him saying, I'm that Messiah that's going to suffer. I'm the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So Jesus is predicting his death and predicting his suffering. And time after time after time, the guys just don't get it because they're missing the point. And see, the rich young ruler, he missed the point of the moral law. He missed the point of the moral law, which reveals to sinners that we are sinners, and we therefore need some other route to godliness. The disciples, they missed the point of the sacrificial part of the law. They missed the point of why there was blood all through the law, why there was somebody was suffering Every time a sin was committed, in accordance with the law, if there is a sin committed, somebody's got to shed some blood. And all through the Old Covenant, you see animals, bulls, sheep, and goats, all the way through there shedding blood because men commit sin. And now, Jesus is saying, I'm bringing you a new piece of the puzzle here. Bloodshed is still going to be part of atoning for sin. And that's where the disciples are missing the point that not just the rich young ruler's sins, but their sins require payment, require substitution. And they're looking for Jesus to win a physical battle over physical enemies. And Jesus is saying, uh, the, the spiritual battle that's raging inside of each of you disciples, of your fallen nature, waging war against your desire to follow me, that's more important than Caesar sitting on a throne in Rome. And, and Satan, the great adversary, he's more important than Herod sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. That's the battle I came to fight. And the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. We know what ransom means. 
that means you pay something to get somebody else out of something. He came to be a ransom price so that sinners could be rescued and their sins could be paid for. And that's where the disciples are still missing the point. But then there's one. The passage closes in verse 35 and following with one guy that gets it. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped, and he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Stop right there. We have a blind man who is in Jericho. So again, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, passing through Jericho on the way. And this blind man hears the crowd, hears commotion. He asks what's going on. Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. And the blind man shows more insight, shows more vision than the rich young ruler did, or even than the disciples did in the section right before. Because the, the blind man recognizes something. He hears Jesus of Nazareth is coming, and he says, Jesus, son of David. And he recognizes in calling Jesus son of David, he is calling him king. Jesus, king, have mercy on me. He recognizes his need. He recognizes his, dis his desperation. He recognizes the capacity of Jesus to help him. And he recognizes that he does not deserve Jesus' help. He doesn't rightfully deserve for his sight to be restored. That's not what he's asking. Remember the widow in the story last week was saying, give me justice. That's not what the blind man is asking. He's saying, give me mercy. And then in proclaiming Jesus to be king, he is saying, I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready. The ruler was still a ruler. The problem with the rich young ruler is that he still had his own little area kingdom to rule over. And this guy is saying, he, he's got nothing. He's in the desperate enough spot to recognize he needs a new king. And just like last week, we saw that the tax collector was rewarded by God because he was desperate. The widow is a picture of desperation. And the child is a picture of desperation. And God loves the desperate. And the ruler that had everything figured out in the eyes of the world, he didn't get it in the end. The disciples who had all this education and all this experience with Jesus, they didn't get why Jesus was going to die. And this blind man, he gets it. And Jesus says, that guy, that guy that said, son of David, have mercy on me. Bring him to him. Bring him to me. And Jesus stopped, verse 40. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? The exact opposite of what the rich young ruler asked. The, the question that Luke records the rich young ruler as asking is, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But the way Matthew records it is, what good deed must I do 
to inherit eternal life. The rich young ruler's question is, Jesus, what good deed can I do for you to be on team Jesus? And the, the blind man has no capacity of his own to fight through the crowd. The rich young ruler ran through the crowd and got to the front of the line, probably because of his societal status. The blind man is hanging out in the background asking everybody else what's going on around him, and he says, and he's just calling out. People are telling him to shut up. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't tell him to shut up. Bring him to me. And when that man is brought to him, Jesus understands that that man is ready to hear the question the ruler wasn't ready to hear. You know, I told you that it's surprising to us when Jesus is asked, how do you enter into the kingdom of God? It should surprise us that Jesus goes to the law first. But it's not because the law is what brings us into eternal salvation. It's because the law, seeing yourself as a sinner in light of the law, is the necessary checkpoint. And so the scribe had to go through that necessary checkpoint of seeing himself as a sinner, and he didn't do it. The rich young ruler had to go through that necessary checkpoint of seeing himself as a sinner in the eyes of the law, and he didn't make it through that point. But this guy, the blind man, who couldn't see anything, saw everything. He saw himself as a sinner in light of the law. He saw himself as as needing mercy and not justice. He didn't come asking for justice. He came asking for mercy because he knew what the son of David had to offer, what King Jesus had to offer was what he needed most. He makes three bold confessions in this passage. In verse 38, he says, Jesus, son of David. He proclaims Jesus to be his king. In that same verse, he says, have mercy. He proclaims Jesus to be both good and the source of mercy. That Jesus is good enough to give mercy and Jesus is powerful enough to be able to grant mercy and healing. And then, in verse 41, after Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? He says, Lord, help me recover my sight. And in proclaiming Jesus as Lord, as Kyrios, he proclaims, I'm ready to follow. I'm ready to be 100% in. I'm ready to be yours in a way the rich young ruler was not ready to be yours. And Jesus says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. The rich young ruler surely knew the law better than this guy did, but this guy knew himself and knew Jesus better than the rich young ruler did. He knew himself as requiring mercy and Jesus as being able and available to give mercy. So in closing, I have two questions for us. How do you see him? Do you see him as the rich young ruler did, as a teacher? Or do you see him as the blind man did, as king, full of authority? Lord, meaning you're ready to follow him in everything. Full of mercy, meaning there's nothing good that you contribute to your own salvation, but only what he freely gives you. Do you see him as valuable in a way the rich young ruler couldn't? The rich young ruler valued the things of this earth more than he valued the kingdom of God. Do you see him as the suffering servant who has been substituted on your behalf, shed his blood for you in the way the disciples missed it? And now, if we see him rightly, that's question one. Do you see him? Do you see him and who he is in light of this passage? The next question 
Now what? What do we do now with what we see? My call is to get out of the miserable middle. Get that one foot out of the things of this world and, and put both feet into the things of the eternal kingdom. Follow Jesus with complete obedience, complete adherence to him in a way that the desperate blind guy could do it and the rich guy who had everything else figured out just couldn't do it. And then in the end, we see that this God of mercy, the, way, the God that Titus 3.5 describes as, according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we need, guys. We need regeneration. We need old dead hearts to be regenerated into new hearts. And we need renewal for the Holy Spirit to come and make us new. So that's what we cry out for. We cry out for mercy. And when we receive mercy, look what happened when the blind guy received mercy. Immediately, verse 42, immediately he recovered his sight and followed and glorified. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. When the blind receive sight, people notice and people give glory to God. And when we, who are desperate sinners, condemned by the law, and redeemed only by the blood of the suffering servant, the Son of God, Jesus. When we receive new life in Him, when we follow and when we glorify Him, the world notices and gives praise to God as well. So that's our charge as we go out. Get out of the miserable middle, get into full followership in the kingdom of God, and just see who around us might notice when we readily proclaim the beauty of what's happened. So we're going to stand, we're going to sing about the cross, and we're going to recognize that we are where we are, sinners saved by grace, not because of what we contribute, but because of what he has accomplished.
cross recognizing our own sin and shame have been taken away by Jesus being willingly put to shame and having his blood shed on our behalf. May we be like this blind beggar who sees and not like the rich young ruler who is so caught in the world that even though he desires to follow can't quite get there. Father give us give us new hearts clean hearts of abandon and devotion to you. And Father, make the world take notice of what happens when people called by your name live in full dependence and devotion to you. So Father, we walk out today in celebration of the cross. And if anyone is here this morning that is still clinging to their own righteousness and their own efforts, Father, take that away. And bring us each to a full knowledge of our dependence upon you, our sinfulness in, as proclaimed in the law, and our need for a blood sacrifice to bring us peace with you. And Father, the beauty of knowing that the grave is not empty, but victory has been established, and we as sons and daughters can now live with freedom in your kingdom. We praise you, Father. We thank you for the blood of Christ and the victory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. And on the basis of what Jesus has done for us, we receive the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.